Hello and welcome to the 181st episode of The Sausage Factory, which is brought to you by Spong.com and hosted by me, Chris O'Regan. In this show, we interview video game developers and ask them how they better start making games, what differences are and who inspires them. Split into two halves, the show initially focuses on themselves, and the second half will discuss the game they hit to promote, which in this case is Cube 2 by Toxic Games. Benjamin. Hello. Who are you? And what do you do? So, my name is Benjamin Hill, and I am uh, the producer, director, and writer of Cube 2, um, uh, which was uh, released recently for PC, Xbox One, and PS4. So, that's what I do. Thank you very much. That's why you're here, as I just (laughs) said, so thank you. Um, Also, I mean, there's something I will say to developers, you know, well done in finishing a game. Now, to to people who don't... Are working in the development, it don't come across as somewhat patronising. It isn't. The, no, act not of com- all. <laughs> the act of completing a game, not in completing a game, as in as in finishing the creation of a game, is a phenomenal thing. Uh, <laughs> because it's lots- definitely a journey, isn't it? It's, it is. Uh, it's a very, very every every single game uh, that I've worked on, and this is my. A uh, fourth premium, like my fourth major game. I've worked on some small games as well, but mm. each one is a, a challenge to complete in, in its own way. Everything's got its own speed bumps. So, and it sounds like a bit of a Renaissance man that you've actually written as well. Yeah, that's, I, I um, that's no mean feat. That's incredible. Yeah, no, that's where I started in the games industry. As a, as a well, I started. Uh, in in academia um, and then I kind of got into writing and narrative design in my own studio and then I went off and worked for other studios around the world doing that in, in a freelance capacity and uh, yeah I, I love writing it's it's kind of what I've always wanted to do and that's turned into games development which is quite interesting I think it's quite different to a lot of people so so this also answers my second question which is a common mm-hmm. feature that happens on this show that mm-hmm. developers or guests preempt what i'm about to ask them <laughs> it's almost as if they're standing next to me it's a bit peculiar but they're not um but basically the question is how did you make your start making games now when i ask this you can go back as early as you possibly think sure yeah absolutely so um I, I've, I've always been into video games uh, i think um i think when i was five years old i got a, a sega mega drive that's a genesis in in the states uh, um Sonic and uh, Ghouls and Ghosts and a variety of other video games and uh, definitely was hooked on on playing games anyway. And I I don't think um, even when I was younger, I I don't think I ever thought it was a real thing that you could do, you know, as growing up, even when I got to my teens, when you start thinking about your career or what you want to be. and and I actually didn't do games at university. I did a degree in animation, and um, and it was towards the end of my degree in animation where I've been writing a lot of screenplays for animation and um, really enjoying um, that kind of process. I did English literature for my uh, you know high school and. And I did. I went to art college and did painting and all sorts of things along those lines. So I was very into my art, and um, I always wanted to be an artist, so to speak. But um, and ended up in animation. But um, towards the end of that process, um, I realised that I was terrible at animation. Um, I was very good at writing, uh, and I had a friend who um, had been developing this uh, this flash based game. Um, if people remember when we used to make flash games, and um, 
Um, and I came on board and helped him with some design and some uh, QA playtesting. And uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed the kind of process. And, and this kind of prompted me to apply for a master's in games design at the University of Central Lancashire in the north of north of England. And, uh, and it's one of those things, like all the way through education, I'd always felt like... I was never that invested in whatever I was doing, apart from probably English and uh, and, and and art, and they didn't seem viable for a career in any capacity at that time. Um, and when I started doing my master's in games design, I found that these two worlds I was interested in, um, uh, what I had always been interested in, I think, was how to make the words I was writing interactive in some capacity. Um, and, and that interest in video games suddenly felt very real uh, as, as something that I could do, I could make, and uh, and there was a craft in it. Um, and I uh, I explored uh, narratology versus ludology um, in my masters, and that was my dissertation. I also explained, I uh, looked at a lot of mechanical game design stuff, and and then after that, um, I met uh, a great game developer called Pete Bottomley. Um, who is works at White Paper Games? Um, he's making a game called The Occupation at the moment, and we um, we founded White Paper Games together. And uh, and over a three and a half four year period after we'd finished school, um, we developed a game called Ether One, um, which I again I wrote uh, and was a director on. Um, with Pete and um, and that was the start of my career really that's what got me into it it was it was that it was that risk of education I think so that's a fantastic story and I I loathe to hear you say that oh you know English isn't really a you know a vocational something something Uh, vocational to read but you know most of the vocational courses are extremely a tough to get into, and B can be quite so focused that they they they, they don't actually talk about anything beyond that subject you're reading. Yes, um, I can give the examples, and as just not doing you know, a medical degree and um, engineering degrees are very you know traditional engineering, or maybe even software engineering as well. They all have this very focused. You will read this for four years. That's yeah. all you will do. And if you don't like it, then then you know, and it's 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 difficult. And um, there's a perception, and I I, I loathe it to, to to believe that that you know the only oh, you oh you stud, you read geography. What was the point of that? It's such an ignorant thing to say because it's mm-hmm. it's <laughs> it. There's so many things. Uh, the, the the study of these things of of these subjects isn't a waste of time at all. The the act of being able to think and study and understand. You know the evolution of cultures and how people um, migrate from one place to them. That kind of thing is very important. Very in- and English or indeed language. I I'm going to say something and it's related to what you're saying. And I want to draw this out. If if, if forgive me, but I play no, no. I play a lot of pen and paper RPGs, mm-hmm. and what I found is fascinating is how. The power of language, and I mean that, it sounds a bit sort of, but it is so powerful, when it's used correctly and with an adept hand, that if you look at a manual for a, 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 a role-playing game written in the last year and compare it to one that was written 20 years ago, it's night and day. Mm-hmm. One is barely comprehensible, and the other one is, well, you do this, and this explains this, and here's the... It's just they're, but they're both made up of the same jumble of words. You know, it's both English. They're both just a book. They're both the same medium. 
but they are completely different things. One is uh, junk. <laughs> <laughs> just going to say it. I'm not going to mention any games, but, you know, okay, I'm going to do it. D&D Thread Edition. Oh, God. Yeah, and then com- you look... Complexity yeah. for, for the sake of complexity is... Uh... You know, and then you look at uh, the latest editions of Dungeons and Dragons, and they're they're vastly different. And there's and the way that the language is is used, it, it kind of promotes this um, ability to jump in and start playing immediately, and not worry about the the kind of um, uh, uh, these complexities of the rules, anyway. So. But it's the same medium, Ben. But it's the same medium, uh, and it's often the same way that you play the game as well. So. Yes, <laughs> it's just. Come on, I don't. It's just incredible. It's a, I believe it's one of the most powerful identifiers, explanations. Like English is not just. There's more to it. There's much more, much more to this. Mm-hmm. And understanding the, the concepts of passive voice and you know the subtle art of the semicolon. <laughs> I, I am a big fan of the semicolon. Uh, sometimes I'm not so subtle with it, and I overuse it. Um, but I think people that enjoy writing often do overuse semicolons, and that's what editors are for. They're essentially semicolon. Yeah, um, get rid of us. <laughs> yeah, it's like, um, why have you done that run-on sentence? Not run-on sentence. It's not. Is it? Uh, is it? Because it's got a semicolon there. No. <laughs> you put that in there because you know you've done a run-on sentence. Possibly. Uh, but no, we're, we're, we're digressing a bit. And also, programmers, yes, semicolons used for other things other than what you use them for. Um, it's just a really important thing to, to, to know. And also, uh, I do believe, uh, going back to pen and paper, that uh, uh, I think one can learn a lot from um, you know developing games as a GM or a DM. I found that there's mm-hmm. a lot of correlality between you have a set of rules... <laughs> And then you create a world that is then infused with those rules, and then you, there you go. And, and it's very there's a lot of similarities between so DMs and GMs. I believe are like they're a bit like modders. Mm-hmm. You know, they're making worlds using the structure of another game of a system, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, there's, there's a lot of correlation between the two. Yeah. So yeah, I can and uh, yeah, it's people regard it as a soft skill. I do not believe it's a soft skill. Uh, it's actually a very difficult one to actually, and the, 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 to to get to to grab people's attention as well. How, how do you how do you think you 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 do that as as a writer as a storyteller? Well, I have my own views, but you you tell yours. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, it can be if it can be tricky. It, it does depend on what medium um, I'm using. Um, I myself uh, um, uh, I enjoy um, pen and paper um, kind of games. Uh, I, I can't say I've ever DM'd, um, um, but I did. Uh, I, I was a university lecturer for for about five years, and I used to teach people um, how to write and design mechanics um, onto using pen and paper to to kind of get away from the graphical engines and and the screens and actually think about what the core of you're trying to express. Um, and and I kind of still use this process when I'm I'm, I'm uh, writing you know big 3D games like Cube Two. Um, I'm a big fan of mystery and I'm and I quite like certain aspects of um abstract storytelling and one of the things that I've I've always enjoyed and I kind of we kind of do this in Cube 2 a little bit is having these kind of pillars of information that 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 I use very early on in the game that don't necessarily connect together 
until you have this holistic view of the story. And as the story kind of progresses, then things start making sense. In a way, it's like puzzle solving, um, but with with storytelling and with writing. So um uh, I like to kind of drip feed these interesting bits of information um, and then as you read further or as you play further into the game um, you start to make connections between these things, some of them stronger some of them looser um, until you're funneled towards this singular kind of climax uh, which might not explain everything um, I'm a big fan of uh, interpretation in story uh, and generally try to stay away from literal world building um uh, when i say literal i mean in the sense of that you are a um uh, a a kind of tourist within a world i've created I, I i want the player to be able to interpret what's going on within that world and not necessarily me kind of tell them everything so so I find this quite a big hook in video games. We did this in Ether One, um, where we we essentially had a massive red herring of the story. It was a science fiction game. Um, that's what people thought it was. There was these strange things that happened in the game world that nobody you don't understand until you realise the game is about dementia. And then suddenly those strange things make a huge contextual sense. Um, and um, and that's generally how I like to write. And I find this hooks or at least attracts a certain type of uh, a certain type of person to the work. That's, that's just that's, um, I, I do know Ether One actually, and mm-hmm. uh, that's an extraordinary game. And well done for that. Thanks for making that. Thank you. And um, I've actually the, the, this is a topical statement I'm about to say, but um, Ready Player One is, mm-hmm. is, is a book. Uh, not everyone likes it, and I can understand. I'll explain why. I think that's my theory, anyway. But mm-hmm. and the film's coming out in a couple of couple of well days, I think, or week. Yeah, yeah. I think is it this week or is next it, week? Next or... week, yes. And a lot of people are riling against it because wait, it's just a bunch of eighties retro stuff and a bunch of lists, and it's like, well, yes, but it's actually about not about eighties or, or it's actually actually it's a David and Goliath story. Is one small person up against a terrible system mm-hmm. that he's trying to fight against and, and, and eventually prevails in a certain way. I don't go into the spoilers. Um, but it's also about autism, mm-hmm. about how people, how people, autistic people view the world and the universe that we live in. And that's what it's really about. So it's all these lists, you know. Strength of allegory, I think, yes. is hugely important in storytelling. Yeah. Um, one thing I found really interesting that you mentioned there is uh, David and Goliath as well. Yes. Um, uh that's definitely something i think i mean i'm pretty not all writers but i think a lot of writers do i'm uh, i don't necessarily look at myth you know exact myths but as i'm writing certain myths make more sense within the work and and that into itself allows for anchors at least to to you know classic or primal kind of storytelling that people do yeah. latch on to and we, we could then delve into the depths of the iliad and Beowulf, etc., mm-hmm. and other, you know, sorry, other, and also Celtic legends, etc. We could do that, uh, but that's not that kind of podcast. However, mm-hmm. um, this does relate to my next question to you: mm-hmm. uh, is um, what do you believe are your biggest influences? I think you've answered this already, but uh, what do you believe is the thing you anchor yourself on to Benjamin? Oh, my biggest influences. Um, uh, so. Uh, most most of the games that I work in is are science fiction, and uh, and I'm a, I am a fan of science fiction. Um, uh, not 
not in i would say like blindly i don't just like all science fiction um mm. um i grew up on um things like blade runner and um, my, my my father's very much into that type of cerebral science fiction i think uh, used to have a lot of books. Uh, I read a lot of Philip K. Dick um, growing up. Yeah, he um, wasn't very well, was he? <laughs> no, he, he wasn't. But it made for a fantastic journey, <laughs> and um, and, uh, and and I really liked that that aspect aspect of escapism. Um, uh, and as I've grown up, uh, and as I, as I, I studied further English literature, you know, um, there was all sorts of books that, that absolutely fascinated me. One flew over the cuckoo's nest, really struck a chord with me. Other classic science fiction, such as John Wyndham um, or H.G. Wells, um, all kind of really resonated with me in in, in a huge kind of way. Um, and, and I think for me, it was about trying to explore an unknown through fantasy, right? Um, uh, or trying to explore aspects of the world that we're in whether that's a political um um idea whether it's a a topic of some kind like we did in ether one um and then using um you know f- uh, fantasy in some aspect to to explore that in a in a, in a greater kind of depth um uh, i i'll with with writing as well, um, and with games, I, I've always been quite inspired by. Uh, I mentioned surrealism and art, and um, before I'm a big fan of people like David Lynch, for example, uh, and other kind of uh, artists. I would say in, in that kind of capacity. And although I, you never, um, again, this is the importance of reading or importance of taking in media. Um, I never take one bit of information from anybody. Um, I take tiny little bits of stuff that that fascinate me, um, and that I think creates me as a personality. Um, uh, particularly in my work so and then you kind of create your own identity through through all of those little bits of inspiration that you you've gathered throughout throughout your entire life fantastic i think we all do that of course mm-hmm. we do i mean the, the glib answer maybe not glib but um, potent answer that's a better way mm-hmm. is oh i'm inspired by reality yes <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm inspired by the, the, the reality i live in yeah that's, that's my biggest influence and yeah. um that's fine. I mean, I was going to go back a little bit on the science fiction. Do you read culture novels at all? Did you read Ian, Ian Banks or did you not? Did that pass um, you by? I've, the only Ian Banks book I've read is The Wasp Factory. Right. which isn't science fiction but is absolutely fantastic yes um you know um uh, but i know i haven't read ian m banks and that's very naughty of me <laughs> um i mean i mean for me I, I always advise when people are sort of delving into science fi or they're talking about it for me there's two kind of seminal sort of um series that i recommend unreservedly and we also give warning too um mm. i do like the june book yep I read the first one, then made the terrible mistake of reading the others. <laughs> um, I'm personally not a big fan of Chapter House of Dune and Heretics of Dune and stuff. No. Nope. Because yeah. I think they basically diluted what, what the message was of the first book, mm-hmm. um, of which there are many messages, of course. Yeah. And then the, 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 the culture novels is basically an extraordinary concept of a culture that um, is so advanced to the point where they have you know defied death itself mm-hmm. and are actually bored and <laughs> they they go round to go over lesser civilization or less advanced civilizations and just observe them <laughs> <laughs> and i think you know one of the things i've always sort of danced around with is making a culture rpg but to you know one all the other players are just regular people in this mm-hmm. but one of them <laughs> is actually a culture and if you're culture you can't die 
right, okay. cannot die. Um, so they have their head chopped off, and like, I'm still alive. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's just to be a nice sort of conceit or an idea. Uh, but to, to, uh, but my negative against that would be I don't like secrets between my players. Uh, I don't like them. right. Okay, uh, it's, it's like, quite yeah. quite interesting as a as yeah. a game mechanic, I guess. Secrets between mm. players, isn't it? Though, it is, so. Yeah. Yeah. personally when i'm running my games i like to have an open because that way it feeds everyone can then feed the story mm-hmm. yeah um but the, the conversely there are the many gms who love secrets of team players mm-hmm. because they like to have this backstory that no one else knows about and that kind of thing and that create, creates intrigue and mystery which is something mm-hmm. you advocate for and yes absolutely too. they have their pluses and minuses but i just don't like having little notes passed between players like that like Come on, <laughs> let's just not do that. I think uh, I think you can have intrigue and mystery as the DM. You, you know, you, you know yeah. yourself. You you can hold that for for the players. I think, mm. uh, yeah, yeah. But this, you know, this all goes back into as a narrative creator, and you're, <laughs> you know, I've got enough mysteries as it is. We don't need more around this because <laughs> I've got this big notebook full of mysteries. You're more than enough. <laughs> mystery yeah. thank you very much <laughs> so um next question and this one i uh, i have developers sort of balking at it sometimes so i don't want to hurt anyone's feelings because the question is what developer do you most admire in the industry and why oh yeah um that is a tricky <laughs> one really um <laughs> you don't want to hurt anyone's feelings no it can be a company or a person or both i don't mind i definitely need to think about it a little bit um the that's tricky um i think there is i th- i'm trying to think now i've got lots of people in my head right now i'm trying to pick pick one that, that you that, can that, pick that many be... don't worry i don't i don't discriminate you can, uh, most developers i have on they usually pick a, a clutch of them rather than just one so I think, uh, well, first off, I'm going to go with one of my favorite games of all time. It definitely got me into video game writing. So uh, Yu Suzuki is is definitely one of my heroes in the games industry. Um, he was the director of Shenmue um, on the Dreamcast. And um, I, for me anyway, I was a teenager when Shenmue came out and I'd only ever played arcade games beyond this kind of point. And, and he was absolutely one of the first um advocates for story driven experiences on consoles rather than arcade based experiences on consoles or and also trying to explore this kind of real world kind of depth so rather than using full on fa- there is fantasy in Shenmue but it is about a small japanese little town and the and the almost kind of relationships between people within that kind of space so um uh i think more than anything uh he's a massive inspiration for me in terms of um uh, of writing in an interactive kind of context and trying to write that detail into um video games rather than big broad strokes i i, I do like detail that cube 2 is full of broad strokes and not that much detail but generally um uh I quite like to try and put as much information into a game as possible and, and he as a as a creator um uh, I was hugely kind of in, in, inspired uh, in, inspired by. Um, and I think um, Ken Levine as well um, is a huge, uh, huge inspiration. I admire greatly. I admire him because of his ability to do experimental things with story um, and not just kind of stick with um, certain patterns each game that he 
has kind of created the Bioshock series, for example, the, 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 the all three Bioshock kind of games. Um, uh, you know, they kind of go into crazy spaces that not everybody likes. And I like the idea of pushing some buttons. I like the idea of pushing complex ideas, so universes or whatever. Um uh, and, and I highly admire him and then particularly admire, you know, the way he's kind of moved forward, um, looking at this idea of, uh, of narrative Legos in video games and, and how to create narrative into, into a system and not have it as a separate thing to game design. It, it can become part of the, the systemic structures that, that we kind of create um, to create new opportunities and new pathways for story to be told. Yep. Uh, two great answers. And, uh, you know, Shenmue, also known as the forklift simulator, um, <laughs> and the the outrun emulator as well, mm-hmm. which is of course, lest we forget, and Hang On uh, as well, I think, and, and I think it has on, yeah. and Virtual yeah. Fighter was in there, you know, as yeah. the core system for the fighting. Mechanics. It's incredible, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I'm, uh, uh, but and yeah, Ken Levine is. He, you're right. Some people didn't like what he does, and that's fine. That means he's probably very good. Uh, yeah, someone's that passionate. Like, I really hate that stuff. Oh, it's quite good then. <laughs> um, you know, some as opposed to being bad. It's like I don't like this system. I don't like the way he's done it. You know, mm-hmm. in Infinite was had a lot of pushback, mm-hmm. phenomenal amount, which I didn't. You know, some people that's their call. I think the thing that I push back against is the opening gambit of you being so astonishingly violent. But yes, there was, there was a reason for that, but it is the- just like. The wow. thing is, is when you write in that capacity, and I, we've, I've done this before, where you have something out of context happen at the beginning of a of a of, of a story, and then at the end of it, it makes sense. But there's a long way to go there, and mm. and you can put people off from kind of getting to that that yeah. kind of conclusion. Um, but it does make sense in in his story um, when you get to the end, right? So yeah, um, it's it's, uh, it's it's like the uh, the. Uh... The twist at the end of uh, Knights of the Old Republic. Like, oh wait, yeah, <laughs> oh, that makes sense now. <laughs> that, that makes sense. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> um, but yeah, don't want to reveal what happened. But you, you can guess. I mean, come on, uh, the statute limitations on that game. Surely, <laughs> I think we're fine. Okay, well, excellent answer. So the last question, the first half. Well done. You've made it. One more <laughs> hurdle. Um, this last question I have to ask you, Benjamin, is is uh, is legally required because we're talking about video games on a podcast. So I have to ask you this question: What are you playing right now? <laughs> oh, what am I playing right now? Um, yeah. uh, I'm playing uh, a couple of games right now. Um, uh, I am playing Monster Hunter World, which okay. <laughs> is entirely systems driven kind of kind of grind game, um, and I'm playing that because I like to play. Um, with my friends uh, in the evening it's it's a nice little bit of it's so very different to what i make that i can really enjoy that kind of uh, a kind of game and i'm also catching up on games at the moment um that i haven't i didn't play like over the last like 24 months so i'm playing tacoma um uh, I, I read a lot about tacoma when i when i came out when by fulbright uh, and obviously huge um you know huge fans of their work with gone home uh uh, very similar to some of the the work that I've kind of done myself, um, uh, and I'm about halfway through Tacoma right now. I, I I can't say that I've recently had a lot of time to play games um, with with releasing Cube Two, um, uh, but I'm really enjoying it. I'm really enjoying it because it feels like similar to Gone Home. I feel like I'm kind of rifling through this world that 
exists existed without me and i've now kind of infiltrated it and i'm a voyeur and i'm kind of piecing this quite sad story back together of, of what happened to these people um on this kind of space station and i and i really like the fact that information is again it's about that inter- the idea of interpretation that everything is um fragmented it's fractured and it's my job as a player, my role as the player to start getting those pieces of information and kind of bringing them back together. And you never get the full picture, but you just get enough of a picture for you as the player to interpret. And this is interesting to me because um, I'm having a dialogue with the video game. Then I'm not just getting the story from the video game. I am uh, interacting with that information in, in a way that that is creating meaning um, um, for me, and uh, uh, and that's quite. Uh, it's not a. It's not kind of um, a, a thrilling kind of type of video game. It's it's not trying to, you know, um, kind of you know we're not shooting everything and everything's kind of a thrill seeker. It's it's a much slower contemplative experience, and uh, yeah, I'm enjoying it. Yes, that game goes to dark places, but you probably figured that out by now. Yes, absolutely. Sorry, I'm not going to say, just leave it at that. Um, <laughs> there's a, a game we actually had a guest uh, show on, a game called Deep Sixth. Mm-hmm. Um, I would highly recommend that as a palate cleanser uh, after you've played uh, Tacoma, because although it is quite dark, it also does it with a very satirical slant on things, and uh, it's a wonderful commentary on... Um, certain sort of business practices. But it's about, um, you can look back on a previous episode, you can listen to yourself, but mm-hmm. it's really about um, this person find themselves in a very unfortunate situation and have to get themselves out of it by just <laughs> by fair means or foul. And okay. uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting point and click game that requires you to. Um, go around the space station trying to fix it, or spacecraft, as I say, trying to fix it while it's being attacked by huge space monsters. And it's great uh, because you, you know, you, basically it's a case of a game as if someone invented a game about the phrase, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's a wonderful, very well put together title. Uh, and so I had them on the show because uh, I only have bring people on about games that I, I believe in, or indeed we believe in it over at Spong. So yeah, um, g- good titles. I mean, world, you know, Monster Hunter. It's odd. I've played every single Monster Hunter game ever made, but I haven't actually gotten to that one. Which oh is right, it's, it's, it's almost the opposite for me. So I've always right. found it a my all my all my close friends are, are hugely into um, you know all of the PSP kind of Monster Hunters and all the way through. And uh, mm. and I always found um, I'm I'm used to quite complex video games, but I don't know. I I I always felt uh, and I read a really good article on this. Um, I can't remember what website it was on, but it was talking about. I always felt that it was it'd be too much time for me to invest to get really into it, and I've got other things to do. Yes. Um, yeah. And then yeah. with Monster Hunter World, maybe it's because it's on my PlayStation Four, so it's a sit down kind of experience. I'm, I'm not playing it on the go, or I don't know. Um, but I've, I've managed to invest quite a bit of time into it. Um, uh, and I've really enjoyed the experience so so far. Um, it's uh, it's really hooked me. Uh, and I'm quite. In, I'm getting. I'm getting very interested in in that that type of uh, loop of gameplay at the moment. So. Yeah, and uh, it's Capcom's biggest selling game ever. Which like, yeah, it's crazy. 
uh, but it has little cats in it that have their own little boats. Nice. Well, that's going to that's gonna sell anything, isn't it? Yeah, so. <laughs> it's got cats in it. Yeah, talking cats. And they have their little like boats made out of big leaves and, and things. It's lovely because mm. they don't like water after all. So uh, It's great. It's, it's, just, it's just a, I don't know, it's a very strange game. They have always been very strange games since mm-hmm. the PS2 days. I remember playing this going, wait, this isn't a Diablo clone? No, not really. Now try and cook. Oh, you failed again. Oh, damn it. <laughs> anyway, um, but no, it's a, it's, it's an excellent title. And uh, as I've said, sadly I've not delved into because I've been playing too much Dolores. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Deep. That's, that's my excuse. Pretty good one. No, that's fair uh, enough. Yeah, yeah that's, that's my excuse. Enough. Thanks, Paradox. Nothing but love for you. Okay. Right, well, that's the end of the first half. Thank you very much. Let's now go into the second half where we delve deep into Mm -hmm. Cube 2. So, Benjamin, Zeroth question, please do tell us, what is Cube 2? So, Cube 2 is a sequel, which makes sense, it's got a 2 at the end of it. Um, And it's a sequel to the first-person puzzle adventure game, uh, Cube. Um, Cube came out in, well, the original Cube um, came out in 2011, actually. Uh, It came out in 2012 on Steam, and a lot of people think it came out in 2012. It actually was released in December. Before then on uh, Desura and, uh, I think, Green Man Gaming um, at the time. And um, uh, and then it was re-released again in 2014 as Cube Director's Cut, which um, had a, uh, a story written by Rob Escom. He's a great writer, and uh, he wrote a really intriguing and uh, strange kind of uh, story to overlay um, uh, that game. Um, and a Cube was very much about um, being on a, uh, you, you know, it's very it's similar to Portal in that sense of the, you wake up, you've got no memory, you're in this strange sterile environment, you're solving these puzzles, and you're told that you're on this uh, ship uh, in space and uh, you've got to stop it from colliding with Earth. And uh, I won't tell you what happens, um, um, but that was kind of the general uh, gist of that one. Um, and Cube 2, um, uh, as a sequel, is actually a standalone story to Cube 1, but it's part of the same canon. So you play as a stranded archaeologist uh, named Amelia Cross, um, who has mysteriously awoken among uh, this like sand-swept kind of ruins of an ancient alien landscape. Uh, and together with the distant help of uh, another survivor, uh, Commander Emma Sutcliffe, you must traverse and kind of manipulate this structure of this strange world, um, uh, trying to kind of uh, meet up and rendezvous with each other. So um, when you uh, initially wake up, um, you are kind of wearing this strange, almost like exosuit with these attached gloves. And you are told by Emma that you need to use these gloves to manipulate this alien um, structure around you and that it's been developed by um, the military to, to, to kind of like try and destroy this vessel in, in the first game. 
Um, and your kind of objective is pretty simple in the game. It's to um, uh, locate this beacon and to rendezvous um, with Emma and to find a way back home and off the planet. And that's where you're left. So, um, so it's all about solving puzzles. It's all about navigating through this very strange and alien space. And uh, there are twists and turns along the way. Excellent summary. It sounds like you've done it before. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I find it just, it really does reward one's like um, lateral thinking abilities, which we'll talk about later on in mm-hmm. a moment. But uh, it's just it's so tactile and so deliberate and everything has a certain pace to it. And, like, you know, take your time. Don't worry about it. And um, it's... Um, it's wonderful when you just see it's so easy to overthink the puzzles. I mm-hmm. know what you're doing. I know what the, you as designers are doing. Like, would you try to lead me down a path of overthinking it? <laughs> constantly going, no, because I can't do that. <laughs> you know, this can't be done. So why am I? I remember first encountering this when Half-Life 2, I think it was. It might have been Half-Life 1. I can't remember. But there was certain no, Half Life Two. It was Half Life Two. Sort of reveled in the fact that you could move objects around and pile them on top of each other, and then you find people doing things. Oh, you could do that. No, you don't need to do that. You can just do something very simple. All you need to do is this, and you're done. You know, the the, the power of the gravity gun was both its uh, its 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 uh, boon and its bane because mm-hmm. you could do all these ridiculous things with it. <laughs> but in fact, you only need to do this one thing and. All this other stuff you're doing is ridiculous, uh, and um, you know it's it's that's the thing about games generally. They are within, they have a set of rules and, and boundaries, and it is not a limitation. That is a that is a liberation. Mm-hmm. But you just have to respect that. Once you understand what those boundaries are, the puzzles become very very easy to solve. Mm-hmm. The problem yes. is. The problem is that human beings aren't like that. <laughs> um, they're not computers. If they were, then we, you know, we will be dead anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, no, we're not like that at all. We actually want to go. Oh, but I can do this. I can. No, it doesn't. Can't do that. So why are you trying to do that? And that's why people get frustrated. Like, you know, got stuck on a problem because they're trying to overthink it or they're looking outside the boundaries for within which they can work. Mm-hmm. It's genius. Um, which then leads me on to my first design question for you. Just so to paint the picture a little bit more to the listeners, um, you have a special suit that you're given, you're, you're equipped with. It's never really explained later on of it. <laughs> you have this stuff, and uh, you're allowed to, to do three things uh, initially. I'm sure it expands more, but that's just, you know, for purposes of, of description, describing the game now, there are, there's blue, red, and green. Won't be others, but let's just focus on these three for the moment. Blue allows you to jump very long distances. The, typically, you can only jump very short distance of one cube, if you want a better phrase, uh, height. But typically, if you use the blue, you can fly off in much, much greater distances. Uh, the red is a pillar that can be drawn out and, retreat, and retracted. And green is a cube, a green cube that can be used. So with these three tools, you can then use to manipulate various sort of interact twitches and buttons and doors and what have you to progress through the game. So that's what you do. You use these. It's a bit like Rubik's Cube, only less annoying. Um, (laughs) um, So my first question then, so to give the first question context, is when the player is jumping via the blue panels, I've noticed 
that they cannot interact or do anything. They are floating through space, they cannot change their direction, they cannot move, they can't rotate. They cannot interact with anything. Why? So... Um, this is actually depends on the angle. Uh, it actually depends on which panel the blue cube is base, um, placed on. If it's on a flat panel, you do have control over your trajectory. So you, if you run into it in a specific direction, you do have a bit of air control um, um, allowing you to kind of land on spaces. If you jump on a... Um, uh, on a angled blue cube, then the the character will automatically rotate in the air to face the direction that you're being bounced in. Um, so I think this comes down to this core idea of uh, when we were designing the puzzles for the game, one of our core objective was to allow players to line up puzzles. Um, and so, so that is to say, set everything up as intended once they understand the solution or they understand what they're meant to do. Um, and... Um, uh, we didn't with with trying to interact with stuff in the air. We didn't want players to think that the game was kind of a twitch-based kind of game. There's there's, there's a part early on in in the experience um, that we saw in early testing, um, showcasing a um, packs and a variety of other kind of places, as well as private testing, where players were trying to bounce on the blue cube, then trying to extrude a red cube in the middle of the air to land on it. And it's just not with the speed of the situation that's happening. It's not um, it's very difficult to do. It. It's possible to do. But it's very difficult to do. And people will get stuck in this loop of thinking that was the solution. And they were really strongly trying to uh, exact that solution. And, and they were getting frustrated. Uh, and frustration is one thing that, that, that you really don't want players to to encounter in a um uh, in such a simple kind of interaction, you know, you get blocks in puzzles and all sorts of those things. But in this situation, we wanted people to understand this fairly easily. And um, and so one of the things that we kind of did was um, it was easy to remove that ability to interact as you were bouncing through the air. Um, so it's clear that that just wasn't the solution um, path to that kind of problem. The second reason that we did it on the angled um, cubes was actually to do a disorient and it's actually very difficult um we might actually be putting a, a an option in a patch in in the game to to toggle this on or off um but what we found was that if people were jumping on an angled blue cube they'd want to rotate in the air themselves but were struggling to do so um and so what they do is they'd they would face the direction they wanted to go and they'd back up onto the blue cube and jump backwards onto it just so they could see where they were kind of going um and so what we kind of did was we for those kind of panels we we just added a uh, a basic trigger into the into the experience that would just allow the players um, uh, momentum to move them across and at that point you can't control your momentum uh, the arc is controlling it for you with the physics um, uh, and, and that actually stops a lot of people kind of feeling motion sick and a variety of other things in testing although with anything along these lines you always get people that are the totally opposite to all your testers um, so um we're, we're gonna be adding in we're, we're really into accessibility and so the more options we can put into the game for people to toggle things on and off then the better really uh, but that is why um why that that occurred so i mean the idea was that i thought is that um the cube two is not really that much of a dexterity game no not at all Just no to be clear and for me, when I first played Cube and and this title as well, um, I thought, oh yeah, you, you you're going to have to do uh, 
some serious dexterity stuff to get through some of this stuff, mm-hmm. assuming that's gonna that's how it's gonna pan out. For example, you hit a blue cube, you jump off, you leap off of it, and then you've got to spin round and then select another one before you land on it, and then you jump off that one. Yeah, and no. so on and so forth. And it's like, oh, that's good. Oh wait, I can't do anything. And it was mm-hmm. just very liberating. Mm-hmm. I already sort of thank you for that. Like, oh, that's that's a relief. It, it's it, so it's just it's, so t- stressful. <laughs> Absolutely, and it, I think the game isn't about reflexes and um, uh, and that, that that kind of dexterous kind of movement, either with your mouse or keyboard or your your gamepad or or DualShock or whatever you're playing the game on. It, it's it's very difficult when when you're puzzle solving. Like I said it's about lining up these kind of solutions. It's about understanding and absolutely. And I don't think we're 100 successful all the way through the game with this, but I think we've done it pretty well. Is that when you know what the solution is, it's it, it's fairly straightforward for you to enact that solution, um, and uh, you're not going to struggle just to solve the puzzle. That the, the problem solving is to find the solution and then kind of and then kind of put that into motion. Um, the motion of of doing that puzzle once you know the solution shouldn't be difficult because that becomes frustrating then because you know what you need to do um and and so that is definitely something that we we thought an awful lot about um when developing the game particularly in 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 qa when we're testing you know uh, deeply and figuring out um kind of you know how 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 things kind of move through um uh, how how people are learning how to play this kind of experience. People weren't using reflexes; they didn't want to use reflexes. And we actually have a, a, an, a an additional option within the experience um, that's called auto jump because we do have jumping in the game and there is platforming. But again, for people that might struggle with um, uh, that sort of dexterity. Um, then we have this auto jump kind of component. So you don't have to worry about making the jump. You can just line it up and it'll automatically show you where you can jump to. And all you have to do is press space bar and it'll arc you across the point. So, um, which again, is about accessibility. Which leads me on to my next question. Again, you're very good at this. When developing puzzles, how reliant are you on players' familiarity with lateral thinking? So... Um, it's interesting this actually um, I think it's not something we design puzzles around it's kind of something that we then think about after we've designed the puzzles and remove stuff to kind of bring it um, I don't like to personally over rely on lateral thinking I think the first thing that I like to look at when we're designing anything in a game, whether it's puzzles or a system or in Cube 2, it's obviously a puzzles, um, is how designs afford um, experiential learning experiences. So so as you you do something fairly simple, you learn a process or you learn a rule or you you know a context of some kind that that then in a more complex room, we then repeat that in a, in a smaller, in a, in a component of that. So you know how to interact with things and you know the rules of everything and you've learned that through an experience. Um, and so often it's in some puzzles, it's a process of just figuring out how to um, uh, kind of work the machines, little components, and then that forms a solution. 
Um, and these create stepping stones for players to learn more complex ways of thinking. So over time, you're kind of feeding that complexity into, into the puzzles. Um, and so generally, I think Dave, our puzzle designer, he'll design all the puzzles to stack up in this kind of way. So you're learning all these components. And uh, and so what you get there is you get some people that have to think about things a little bit longer, but nobody ever really gets stuck. Um, you get people that can work through it quite quickly. And then what we do is we then look at those again retrospectively and um because obviously the idea of an aha moment is is very powerful reward in puzzle games so that moment you go ah, i've got it that's the solution to the puzzle um and that often comes from lateral thinking um so i think once we have a nice set of puzzles that are like steps towards complexity we then we then can play around with these um to create these moments that require lateral thinking and pushing the player to kind of find new angles and creative perspectives to solve a component of those puzzles um uh and again it's kind of like uh you know how everything works, but then there's just this bit missing and that's the bit that requires you to maybe look at look at the puzzle from a new perspective or find a new way of interacting in some capacity and then and then that's kind of how you solve it. Um uh I think as long as long as one of the things is that as long as the player's already been taught how to do all of it, we can kind of create those question marks. So Yeah, for me when um there are times when I'm sort of messing around going, Oh, I solved it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's perfectly fine too like i'm just messing around this what if i push that oh look it's hit that thing oh there you go oh yeah. wait oh oh i was just messing I, it's quite when that happens it's normally when i first enter the room and i go well that's there that's there what if i put oh look <laughs> yeah it's just uh, you know and that <laughs> i i think with cube it's like um one of the things that i always like is to try and find this um uh, with, with, for example, with with some games that I've worked on before, I always approach these tasks uh, uh, trying to think of things in a non-arbitrary way. So, you know, you you have like these contextual things in the world that you understand, and and then you can piece to get, you can use those to solve the problem. Um, whereas Cube is abstract, so uh, a lot of it is arbitrary. <laughs> um, you know, blocks coming out of walls and these strange kind of things. There's little to apart from its internal structures, its internal systems that you have already learned. There's little from a context standpoint to really understand um uh, how things kind of work I, i'd say except things like fans and switches where you know what the, those actions afford but um uh yeah I, I i i like the idea of of kind of using lateral thinking as this kind of bonus like kind of uh, uh design idea so trying to work our way work our way into that so we're kind of forcing you to think about the problem in a new way so it's almost like if you could have two puzzle rooms exactly the same one of them is solved in the way you expect and then the other one we kind of remix it so you then have to think about it in a different perspective the visuals in uh, cube 2 are very discordant mm-hmm. was this deliberate yes um so uh, i a little bit about the, the background of cube 2 um when it was actually being prototyped for um, about 12 months, 12 to 18 months while work, whilst people were working on the project. So I wasn't on the project at this time. I was working on Duskers and Hugh. And um, uh, when I was brought on board um, to kind of direct the game, one of the first, one of my early incentives anyway, was uh, uh, to create this uncanny feeling through the entire experience, this this uh, this kind of strangeness that, that didn't feel quite right Um I wanted the player to feel uneasy. 
Um, and the two key areas that we worked into for this was the art direction and the sound design. Um, so when, and this is very na- reliant on context and narrative, I think, and I don't want to go into too much detail, um, you know, spoilers or anything. Um, but I, I wanted this space to feel organic, even though it was inorganic. And when I told my art director that, <laughs> you could see the panic on his face at this point in time is I'm creating this, I'm wanting to create this thing that feels a little bit unusual. Um, uh, and yeah, so we, so we started building things because the first game is very tidy and it's just these rooms and, and we didn't want that. We wanted this almost, almost this organic kind of, um, structure that, that also felt inorganic at the same time. Um, so yeah, we wanted this sense, this, this sense of, it's like an uncanny finally where you know, something should be a little bit different, but it's not quite what you expect it to be. And we wanted to kind of play around with, with those ideas. And I almost wanted to, the, the whole space very early on to subconsciously feel alive. Um, uh, and then as you further get into the game, you start to understand why you're feeling that way. It's um, what struck me is when I said discordant just to explain to listeners, is this, mm-hmm. there's a sense, the lighting and the mm-hmm. shadows and also all the cubes, it's basically this very clean, polished sort of almost marble or plastic i should say mm-hmm. white plastic but the cubes that make up this world this environment aren't all neatly stacked no they're all a bit off <laughs> slightly off they're not you know it's not a nice clean line everywhere this is all very it doesn't it doesn't you know you can't jump on them or anything like that it's just a a scene a sense of like something's a bit odd about this place it's sort of thrown together but not thrown together mm-hmm. it has a purpose but we're not sure what the purpose is and um then there's also lots of cables lying around really sort of haphazardly sort of like oh this will plug into there and then there's nothing all night neatly tight sort of tucked away mm-hmm. it's it's but it's perf- definitely been designed and built in such a way but it's it seems to be um it's alluding to something else yes and I... it's very it's very clever I think it definitely, you know, um, it's one of the things and um, that we that that we definitely tried to do is we knew what the context of this space was. We we understood what it was and and why it existed. And and as we're building the artwork, we we wanted all those. It, it it's kind of again like, this comes down to this idea of non literal storytelling. I think is is we build the identity into the world through through different kind of aesthetic. Um, you know, everything has this contextual reason to exist, but we don't necessarily have to explain it directly to the the player. Um, it, and it creates this sense of, in this sense, it, it did create this kind of, uh, this uneasiness to, to everything that was in there. Um, it, it, it didn't feel like how you should maybe expect it to be. You know, these little oddities um, uh, probably create this, uh, this discordant kind of um, identity. So, mm. So last question, See, mm-hmm. well done, you've made it, you've survived. <laughs> um, the last question concerns the voice acting and the interaction between the two survivors in the mission, uh, at least at the beginning of the game, I won't go into further details. I believe it's extremely well developed, especially for a video game, mm-hmm. and the performance is exceptional as well. 
How much has this informed the design of Cube 2? Um, uh, not very much, um, I okay. think, um, which is kind of a, an odd odd thing. So because of the way the game was developed, and, and this happens sometimes on different projects, um, I've worked both ways. There's two different methods of developing a game. There's, there's top-down and bottom-up, um, very loosely. So top-down is where you, for those that don't know, um, is where generally you, you think about the high-level concept first and then you start thinking about the context and the world and then you start thinking about the the mechanic you know the features and mechanics that might exist in the world and then you boil that all the way down to the the complex programming kind of systems uh, that would then be required to create that world whereas bottom up is the flip reverse so you start thinking about the way things interact within the systems first then you build your kind of mechanics and features and and so forth all the way up and both rely on iteration in different ways um, and um, from a storyteller's perspective, top top down is is a much better way to to work story into a game world. And um, Cube was developed in a bottom up kind of fashion. Its prototype was built um, uh, purely from a mechanical sense, and it was puzzle room after puzzle room after puzzle room, um, which allowed us to create these really strong puzzles. And uh, again, when I was brought, me myself and Harry uh, Core, our art director, was brought was brought on board to develop Cube Two. I was originally brought on as a writer then I wormed my way into directing it um, <laughs> uh, um, uh, uh, through a variety of different things. And um, um, we... Um, it was we we knew we would have to overlay story into the world and so the question then was well you know how do we do that without uh, with our budget constraints and a variety of other kind of problems um so the design already existed so we had to find excuses for how the world was for what we wanted to talk about um uh and the interaction um it did change the way we did the level design that is one thing that we had to change so one of the things that we were keen on um was that um that when um the two characters uh, millie and emma were talking and conversing we didn't want you solving puzzles at the same time and um, we wanted to make sure that you had the opportunity and the freedom to actually listen to that dialogue and to notice it uh, and to understand their their kind of uh, i think quite a human kind of uh, quandary and um uh, uh and so we had to create these like these like kind of what we, we called in between areas um, between the puzzles. So these little bits of level design where the player has a bit of a breather from using their brain and they can see something beautiful, like a nice vista of the desert or, um, or something, you know, interesting um, within the world that you might have not seen before that. And then you can, uh, we can use that, that environment design to kind of, and the music that we would put in there to create an emotional kind of output for the, for the dialogue that was occurring at, at the, at the time um and that's really kind of our process and and so all the puzzles were bland when we first kind of created them from a visual uh, um, uh, sense and harry and i worked this kind of plot that i had written um into these these kind of areas and building out um more open areas thinking about visual dressing a big change occurs in the middle of the game which changes the visuals quite drastically and we were keen on playing around with those ideas um and kind of almost uh, foreshadowing them earlier on in the game so so these little in-between areas were, were very much built out of the the script they were built out of the plot um 
and then I think we had to make sure that in the dialogue that I was writing, that the little bits of information relating to why these spaces existed, you know, were kind of drip fed through. Um, so it was a little bit of back and forth. Um, we recorded the script twice, um, uh, once prior to a lot of the art going in. And then we went back and we changed aspects because, you know, the art uh, had kind of changed the way that we're approaching things due to limitations. Um, so the original script does have quite a few differences towards the back end of the game, um, which would have been great. But again, um, uh, in terms of constraints with time and a variety of other things, we had to work things in a slightly different way. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, I, I'd probably say that the voice acting and interaction and all that kind of uh, that that kind of aspect of the game probably maybe informed maybe twenty percent of, of the overall design, thirty percent of the design maximum. Which probably is surprising. <laughs> yeah, um, because the some of the performance is incredible. I think the best one, or the one that it's quite early on in the game, and it happens towards the end of uh, the demo that I played at EGX last mm-hmm. year, was when um, one of the characters, I think it's Emily, um, she she makes reference to her husband. Yes. Yeah. Her voice cracked. She's yeah. clearly upset because yeah. it's not there. And uh, she saw something that reminded them her of him, and that as the actress, the voice that she's incredible. Said, yeah, oh, she yeah. is. She just actually, you know, really felt emotion, which is an incredible thing to do. That's what actors do; mm-hmm. they pretend they're someone else, and they take on all the neuroses and foibles and stuff, and and be them, and actually uh, uh, express emotion through that other person. That's what they do; they wear that mask. And uh, it's quite unnerving when you think about it, but that's what they do. Uh, and uh, that, was, that, that, for me, was a quite. A, I'm not sure if it was deliberate in your front, but it was a. It was an extraordinary moment of making the character human. Mm-hmm. And that, that for me, I know it's, it was just important. It was a very, it was a very important scene. It lasted seconds, but I thought it was very important. So one of the things that. When writing Cube, I, I, Cube to me is very much about um, humanities, and this is an ongoing theme I think in, in my, my writing anyway. Is um, our whether our our argument between our kind of objective mind and our emotional mind. And, and and these different kind of ideas and, and this is very much a, a, a big kind of a theme I think that we explore with a variety of other things again I won't spoil the middle of the game but um, we explore this in a very kind of uh, allegorical way in, in I, I think or metaphorical in that sense probably um, within the kind of title and one of the things that we that I wanted to do very early on was I'd just written that scene um, prior um and um, to another scene going in right at the beginning of the game, which actually makes reference to to her husband earlier, um, and um, and it kind of felt a little bit odd until we wrote that first scene in, um, uh, which is in the sandstorm right at the beginning of the game, where you get a, you get a voicemail off off her husband Robert, and then later on she makes a reference to him, and then we have another kind of uh, bit of dialogue later on in the game where she kind of contacts him. Um, about something and is unsure whether he even is um, alive still, you know. So kind of like pulling on these kind of uh, these emotional kind of over undertones, I guess, um, uh, about Millie's quite a real 
hum, human kind of struggle and that make that is made even more obvious later in the game i think um that that this is very much humanity versus something else right um yes yes um but within that something else i think there is another the flip side of humanity and that's what we try and play off at the end of the game um i think there's there's this kind of this this kind of split idea of what we should be as humans right so um yeah um and yeah um i was very fortunate to work with uh tamarin um who's uh, who voices uh millie um i in fact all three of the voice artists i worked with uh, alex dunmore and um uh, matthew wade um, were absolutely excellent and we used a recording studio in london called omuk um and so our process with that is that um i'll i'll go down to the recording studio and then i'll work with uh um uh, a voice director there and we'll direct the session together um and then i I, we go about one you know two or three times within the process of making the game just to make sure that the the dialogue is is right for for what we're trying to say within the kind of title um and i i think for me anyway it's a really good kind of workflow so yeah, it shows the the, the the attention to detail is incredible. But um, yeah, yeah, well done, well done on that. Thank you. So that's it. We're, we're done. It's uh, it's uh, Cube Two's out now. Is it imminent or uh, no? It's out now. Yeah, it came yeah. out last Tuesday, the thirteenth. So um, you okay. can get it on Steam. Um, uh, you can get it on Humble, GOG, uh, Green Man Gaming on the PC, and you can also get it on your PlayStation Four and Xbox One. And it's on Windows PC, is that right? It is on Windows PC. It's not on Mac or Linux um, at this moment in time. So no. Just have to explain that to people because a lot of people. Yeah. Well, what about Linux? Sorry, I explained it's Windows PC. Come <laughs> on, get over it. Um, but um, Benjamin, it's been fantastic having you on the show. Mm-hmm. Been really, really entertaining and informative. Uh, very uh, frank and open about your design development decisions. Mm-hmm. So thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome, and thank you for having me uh, on the show. So you're more than welcome to come back to talk about whatever future endeavours you have, um, whatever that may be. You're probably working on it right now. Absolutely, uh, absolutely but, am. So. <laughs> <laughs> but probably come back in uh, two years. And it's not unreasonable because we have had repeat guests on mm-hmm. to talk about their games. Uh, Roll7 have been on. They're going to be on three times pretty soon. So. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. So, I like yeah, the Roll7 guys. <laughs> they're lovely, lovely people. So, uh, yeah, excellent. Okay, well, thanks very much. Not problem at all. Thank you very much, Chris. And so ends another episode of the Sausage Factory. Do leave us an iTunes review. And you can also, don't forget, listen to us on Stitcher.com. So just go to Stitcher.com and you can stream the show from there. You just look up the Sausage Factory and you can find us. That'd be great. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris O'Regan, no apostrophes. And uh, if you want to email me, any feedback on the show or actually you're a developer you listen to the show and want your game featured on it please do email me at chris at spong.com also don't forget to check out the computer game show which is the stablemate podcast shall we say of spong.com bye